Welcome to Spinsters, a podcast where we are wishing for a very safe return for WNBA legend Brittany Griner. Her situation is actually what we're going to be focusing on for the entirety of this episode. I'm Haley, that's Jordan, and our producer is Harry Krinsky. So today we're going to talk to Professor William Elliott Butler, who specializes in international and comparative law, focusing principally on Russia. We're going to talk to him about the Russian legal system and the implications of Brittany being detained at this time as Russia is in the midst of invading Ukraine. We're also going to talk to Dr. Courtney Cox, who is an assistant professor in the Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies Department at the University of Oregon, and who studied the environment that WNBA players experience when they play abroad. They are both incredibly insightful conversations, um, and I can't wait for you to hear them. But first, let's take a quick break. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you've got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Go to Indeed.com slash Spinsters to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Okay, so we are about to talk to Professor Butler and Dr. Cox, but first... Here's what we know about the situation. Over a month ago, Brittany Griner was detained in Russia on drug charges. The Russian Federal Customs Service said that its officials found a vape cartridge that contained hashish oil in her luggage after she arrived in the airport near Moscow. And hash oil is basically concentrated THC. So essentially, they found a cartridge intended for a weed pen. And like we said earlier, this was in February, meaning Brittany has been in the custody of the Russian government for over a month. In case you're not aware of why Brittany was even in Russia in the first place, she is there playing overseas during the WNBA offseason with UMMC in Kantingberg. UMMC is a team based in Kantingberg, competing in the Russian Premier League and the FIBA Europe's EuroLeague women. And while we're doing a show about her situation and moving forward, let's be real about the situation that's taken her over there because it's relevant to understand the entire situation. Yeah, so Brittany made $221,450 last season, 2021-2022, in the W, which made her the fourth highest paid player in the WNBA um, that season. But something that Liz Cambage said in February was, quote, I sat out five seasons because I get paid five to eight times more overseas. And that's definitely true of Brittany's situation as well. Um, I recommend our episode called Overseas, Overworked and Over It that Natalie Weiner brought to us in September for more information on why overseas teams offer more. Um, I do think, like Jordan said, it's important to understand the entire scope of the situation. So now that we're debriefed there, here is Professor William Butler to help us understand the Russian legal system. Before we start, actually, do you mind introducing yourself um, and and your? I I could not pick out which accolades um, were most important because the Wikipedia page is quite long. <laughs> My name is William Butler. I am the John Edward Fowler Distinguished Professor of Law at Dickinson Law of Pennsylvania State University. I've specialized in Russian law for quite a long time. And if I don't mind, I'll 
show you my most recent book, which is called Russian Law and Legal Institutions, third edition, 2021. So Congratulations. I, yes. yes. The Griner matter, um, I've only followed on the media, which means it's broken in the last uh, three or four days. And all I know is what I've been able to read, which is probably what you're writing yourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we Well, since you're familiar with it, um, do you mind us jumping right into questions? No, not in the slightest. Okay. Um, Jordan, I'll go first. I just have a, a basic um, kind of general question. It seems like from her being detained that the um, official Russian legal stance on something like hash oil uh, is a lot more severe than it is in the States. Um, so what is their legal systems um, stance on anything marijuana related? The Russian legal system has for the last 50 or 60 years taken an approach of zero tolerance of listed narcotics. And the list comes from the 1961 United Nations Single Convention on Narcotics, uh, as amended in 1972, and then there's a later convention on psychotropic substances. So the materials that she is alleged to have brought in, according to our media, are on the list. And the she would have to have declared them, and I suspect that had she done so, they would have been taken away but it's, I could be wrong, it's possible they might have permitted them through, but not to declare them, is smuggling. And according to the media, that's what she's been charged with, or at least that's what the customs agency thinks she should be charged with. Hmm. So it's smuggling, not possession? Under that article, yes. There, okay. is, an, uh, there is a possibility that possession could be uh, concluded to be the more appropriate charge. And in that case, uh, it very possibly would be treated as an administrative offense under Article 6.8 of the Code of the Russian Federation on Administrative Violations, which is quite a different thing. In that case, there would be a fine and deportation. Okay. Is there a difference in, I know that a lot of the reports are saying that because it is smuggling, allegedly, that it is 10 years in prison, that's not the case if it was possession. It would only be that fine. If it's smuggling under Article 229.1, the, the provision that I mentioned, the minimum sentence is five years. The maximum is 10, would be five to 10, with the possibility, if the court so decided, of an additional fine of up to 1 million rubles. Okay. Um, um, based okay. off of that, what do you predict is ahead for Brittany? I don't predict. I'm <laughs> too experienced <laughs> to, to even attempt to, to do that. Uh, we'll just have to see how it plays out. There's so many things about this matter that we don't know. This is unusual in this case, in my opinion, at least. We don't know exactly when she entered the country. We don't know exactly what she was carrying. Uh, her spouse has said nothing. Her lawyer said nothing. The United States Embassy has said nothing. It all broke when the Russian Customs Service decided to issue their little information notice about where they were in the matter. 
And so she's been in detention, investigative detention now for up to three weeks. At least that's what the media are saying in any case. Yeah. Going off of that, I, I feel like, um, with this, the time that she's been there, I think it's important to note that it actually came from an Instagram comment from another WNBA player, Angel McCautry, that she'd been there for three weeks. Is there any other way that we can figure out how long she has been detained or how long she could be detained? Well, how long she's been detained would follow from information on when she actually left New York and she would have arrived the next day because those are overnight flights to Russia. Alternatively, I'm sure the United States Embassy knows exactly when it happened. Her lawyer knows, and it's possible that her spouse knows. Um, are there differences? I think one big difference between uh, the Russian legal system, just as we're observing it through social media and New York Times articles from afar, um, has been you typically we expect a lot of information up front here in the U.S. So this is a really broad question. Um, but are there differences in the two legal systems that we might be missing something or assuming something um, because we're so used to how it works here? Well, because I think we're getting much less information than we would normally expect. Uh, I would suppose that if a star basketball player were arrested in the United States, it would make the press within hours in this country. However, the information came out uh, that that has not happened here. Uh, and it, it would appear that all of the people involved have deliberately held back in disclosing what's taken place or normal details that we would expect our press to pick up are not available to us as yet. And of course, the details change your understanding of what's going on. The more you, more facts you know, then the more that alters your picture of, and, and comprehension of what's taking place. And we really have very little to work from. I think um, from another report, uh, a reporter, Erica Cobb, she said it best of how, as Brittany Griner is <clears throat> a black gay woman, that she was not made a priority in America in general. And so now that she is in potential harm, that it, it kind of makes sense, unfortunately, that she is not made a priority right now. But we know that where she is specifically, that they have issues with her being both black and gay. Do you think that she is in greater danger because of those things in Russia that she is right now? I wouldn't jump to that conclusion. I really would not. Uh, assuming that what we know is correct and it may not be, let's assume that she acquired what she brought in in this country somewhere where it was legal to do so. She was able to get it on the plane, which means it passed through our airport security as she looked from the photographs of her at Russian customs as though she were just carrying a knapsack. So she was traveling light and possibly only with hand luggage. Uh, there were sniffer dogs, which are very common in Russian airports looking for narcotics. That's what alerted the customs to run her stuff through the x-ray machine. And they discovered what they discovered. 
So the next question is, assuming that she acquired it for what she considered to be good reasons, why did she do so and why did she bother to try to take it in? Uh, you know, is it something that she uses? Is it something she was giving to somebody else? Well, there are any number of possibilities here. We just have absolutely no idea, and we've not heard her side of the story. Um, yes, that's true. And I think that's part of what why the not knowing um, is, to us, so scary. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, we are obviously concerned for someone anytime that they are detained, um, regardless of the situation going on in the country at the time. You said earlier that it seems like they deliberately withheld information do you have any, I mean, it might be speculating, but any kind of thought as to why something like that would be deliberately withheld, that she is there and she is being detained? Well, she has a number of things on her side as well. She plays for a first-rate basketball team. She's won more trophies in Russia than she has in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's an experienced player there. She's, I understand, been playing there for some seven years or so. Uh, the sponsor of her team is a very significant industrial plant uh, in Ekaterinburg. They own the team. They run the team. Uh, I looked at the roster on Wikipedia, and they're half foreigners, three Americans, including Brittany. Um, I think that's probably not so very different from most of the other teams in the Premier League uh, in Russia, which means that Uh, Because of recent events, if they've left Russia, then they've left the team with half of its normal complement. And they still have a season to play, to finish in any case, so they'll have to make do with other players. Uh, I'm I'm told by the media that at least the Americans are believed to have left, but the WNPA has talked about 50 people, and I don't know how extensive they're their membership is for these purposes, whether it includes European players, South American players or not. Um, 50 is a significant number of top flight women basketball players to lose for a league. Mm -hmm. And so they're in a a difficult position. And that may well also influence the way in which that this matter is dealt with. Yeah. Just going off of that, um, so the league that they play in is the Euro League Women, and I actually read it's a it's a part of FIBA, and I read that they actually canceled the season for the whole Russian teams and the Ukrainian teams. Um, so that was a part of the reason why the Americans on both of those squads were leaving because the playoffs are still going on for everyone else that is involved in the Euro League, but for teams that were in Russia and for teams that were in Ukraine, they completely canceled their seasons. Um, so that was a reason why Brittany, along with a lot of other WNBA players, because they have to go there to earn their living, were on their way home. And she was the only one left. My understanding was that they play in two leagues effectively. That Ekaterin plays Euro League. And then they play the Russian Premier League. Mm-hmm. So if the Euro League is canceled out, that's one thing. But that still leaves the Russian League. And that still leaves them with contracts. And whatever those contracts provide for situations like this, what we might call force majeure, um, remains to be seen. 
Yeah. Yeah. The basketball leagues abroad are, are you're right. They're set up more like soccer leagues are. Um, mm-hmm. Something we're not used to where they're playing in multiple leagues yep. at once. One might be exclusive to the country, the Premier League. Um, and the other one includes other uh countries so like jordan was saying the the that element of their um season has been canceled um and then you know it's something that we've all kind of hinted at uh with our questions and answers but i guess i'll just explicitly ask how do you anticipate the situation with ukraine influencing the situation with Brittany at all if at all it doesn't make life easier that's for certain uh, i don't see that it's directly involved in the situation itself. It seems to me that if you look at it purely from the uh, allegations made with respect to carrying in narcotics, that speaks in a, for itself in and of itself. And the other things may make communication more difficult. For example, the United States Embassy is severely understaffed at the moment because for various reasons, we've been reducing staff and the Russian embassy in Washington also has been reducing staff for the last year and a half or two years. So there are very few people on board there to try to deal with what I suspect is a very busy time for them. A lot of people have been, um, you know, speculating that if it were a, a male basketball figure, if it was Tom Brady that was stuck at at customs that the U.S. would be doing more. But is there anything more that the U.S. embassy or officials could actually be doing in this situation? Well, because of there's such a dearth of information, generally it's hard to know exactly what is doing, what, what they are doing. But the options that they have aren't great. Um, an American citizen who's detained under circumstances like, like this has the right to see the United States consul within a stipulated period of time. That's governed by a treaty between the United States and the Russian Federation. My guess would be that that was probably honored. At least there have been no suggestions to the contrary. Um, if she didn't have a lawyer, then we would probably give her a list of people who she might contact. But my guess is that the basketball team has done that from the very outset and that I would assume that they know their way around excellent advocates in Moscow and that they've supplied her with an individual who knows his way around the system extremely well. So apart from that, checking up on her from time to time, seeing that she's in good health, reasonably good spirits under the circumstances, etc., there's not much more that they can do other than let procedures take their course. I think that um, a lot of the research that I've been doing, um, that Jordan's been doing, is kind of, you know, fear-based a little bit. Like, we just want to find out what can be done, what has been done. And the precedent here is a tricky thing because it is such a unique situation. And like you've said, we don't know that much. Um, But I did find a situation in 2019 um, where there was an Israeli woman who had 10 grams of weed on her and she was detained and eventually she was pardoned. Um, So it turned into more of a diplomatic matter than a legal resolution. And so I'm curious, and I think that this also definitely stems from the situation that's going on. in Ukraine right now. Um, is there any kind of possibility where this becomes something 
larger than just a criminal defense? Well, it's conceivable that that could happen. Uh, as far as I know about the Israeli example that you're talking about, the individual who was uh, detained and prosecuted, as far as I know, was in transit. She didn't actually enter the country. She was just between flights in the airport, mm. which I presume means, but I don't know this, that sniffer dogs also were in the transit area and discovered something. Otherwise, it would be just force of circumstance that would enable somebody to be aware that she was carrying something like that. Um, it was also my understanding, but it may be incorrect, that in the Israeli case, the woman had been prescribed whatever she had. Uh, so she had a prescription. Um, that would strengthen the case for, it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't exempt her from the operation of, of the Russian criminal code, but it would strengthen the case for treating it differently. Um, we don't know whether that's the situation in Brittany's case or not, whether this is something that she carries for medical reasons. And if so, she has a doctor's prescription to back it up. Whether it goes beyond that, only time is going to tell. We'll have to see what happens. I don't know. <laughs> I know. It's just, it's, I, I don't have any more questions, but I'm definitely, it definitely is the fear base. Like I am scared for her because of all the things we don't know because of it's a whole different judicial system that we don't know. And I'm just thinking of her over there confused away from her family. She was there to do a job to play basketball. And now she is in uncharted territory. And I just, I just really feel for her. I think you're entitled to, and I think that she feels worse than you do. I know. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, I just want to ask you more broadly if you think that we, or, you know, consumers who, who are fans of Britney or people who are just checking in on what the situation, is there anything that we are missing or um, that you think it'd be helpful for us to know uh, just about the entire situation or the Russian legal system on a larger scope? Well, a person like myself with my background who looks at as much as we know at this stage asks partly a different set of questions. Namely, why does she have them? <laughs> uh, if the re media reports are correct as to exactly what she had, I Googled them myself and it's not a performance enhancing substance at all. Um, and in fact, the website that I read, which is probably a, a government website, CDC or something like that, was strongly hostile to the substance. Um, they didn't say it couldn't help some people in certain situations, but in general, they recommended strongly against using it at all. So my, my question would always be under these circumstances, why in heaven's name did she have them on her? Uh, and that presumably is going to be an answer to that someday from her because only she knows the answer. Yeah. I mean, from a just, you know, person who's lived in California for six years and who does partake, like, honestly, it's just a weed pen. You know what I mean? So it's probably just for her own enjoyment to relax, maybe to recover. And I think that's the situation I'm scared about, is it getting looped in with something that's more dangerous um, because the conversation we have on drugs, even in the United States, is still so 
inclined to conflate things like marijuana with things that are drugs that are far more extreme. Definitely not performance enhancing. I will tell you that. She probably is just going to want to take a nap after doing it. (laughs) But um, hopefully that is seen that way and able to be put into that context. California, of course, has a different attitude toward these matters than most Mm -hmm. of the states do. Um, Even the federal government is hostile to what's Mm -hmm. happening with respect Mm -hmm. to weed. And you see, I see that as a treaty issue. I think one reason our federal government takes that view is because they know that we're obligated under the UN Convention of 1961 not to do what we're doing. And -hmm. some states are and some states are not. Russia is party to that convention, and they have taken that view from the beginning. And they have taken it with respect to alcohol. You know, Russians are legendary for their consumption of vodka, but not driving. Driving there most of, most of the time since the early 1960s, not all of the time, most of the time, it's been zero tolerance. No presence of any alcohol in the blood if you're driving. So much so that if you went to a reception or a party with Russians, one person would not drink at all because he was driving, or she, as the case may be. Um, Now, they were playing with a bit more flexibility on that score in the 90s, and they found it didn't work, that Mm. their psychology was such zero or nothing. Uh, And that that was the, I believe they've come back to that position. Um, If not, they're certainly thinking about it. So different social systems see these things differently. And if you're going to play be employed inside one, you have to know the local rules, at least to that extent. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And just circling back to what Jordan was saying about her having concerns about, you know, she's a black gay woman. Like, we're not sure, like, societally over there um, what is accepted in the same sense as it is in the U.S. and what's not. And that's not to say that things are accepted in the U.S. Um, I think that our listeners want to know something that I also want to know, which is kind of like a crude question, but because I don't know where this would even start to happen and where it would end. But is there any situation in which you could see this developing as something um, as the Ukraine and Russian situation develops as something that kind of delves more into a hostage situation? Or do you think that that is just an overreaction? I suspect that's an overreaction. That would be my sense at this point. And one of the reasons I say that is that she is a very successful and prominent basketball player there. Mm-hmm. Very good as much as she is here. She plays extremely well. She plays for an absolutely championship team. Russian fans of Ekaterinburg will know that her loss to the team is going to severely hurt its chances. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's one of the factors that's strongly in her favor. That's a good really point. Good I actually point. did yeah. not think of that. Yeah, she's, there's no doubt in my mind she's the best player on that team um, because she's it's a strong team. stack team. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. still a stack team. But um, to your point, she's point. won more there than she has here, technically, yeah. um, for just the type of team that she's on. So that's a really good point. Yeah. I didn't think of it that way. What I'm gently suggesting when I say that is that which is her offseason? She if, she's getting, if she's doing better and getting paid better, on the Ekaterinburg team, 
then it seems to me the Phoenix team is the offseason. <laughs> Professor, the- welcome to our world. We have been <laughs> trying to figure this out for some we are we are number one on job. the Yeah, on the like W has not is not properly handling like it's CBA with the players. But um yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, and that's what a lot of people are saying, you know, why the W has kind of been so quiet in this in the sense that they know that she's over there to make more money and and from playing in her league she can't make a lot of money so i know that people aren't saying a lot of things because there is so much unknown but that's where reports are coming out saying the w has been especially quiet uh because the reason she's over there in the first place maybe uh i mean the other factor is as you rightly said we really don't know much Mm-hmm. and organizations don't stick their neck out when they don't know anything. Mm. So, mm. That's a good point. Um, maybe that they've been asked not to say much, but it's also possible. The lawyers have their own strategies in these matters, and it mm-hmm. may well be that they have their reasons for what they're doing. That's a good point. Um, are you a basketball fan? I'm just curious. I don't have any more I'm questions about I'm a basketball about. fan. I, I watch the WNBA from time to time. I, I like Minnesota Lynx, of course, being a native of Minneapolis. Nice. Um, I think women shoot free throws better than most men. That would be my guess. I've never seen a statistic to prove it. Um, so, yes. If you're going to be a fan of a Minnesota basketball, you're definitely going to be a Lynx fan over a Wolves fan. <laughs> that may well, yes. No <laughs> doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just being a Vikings fan late, lately and a Penn State basketball fan as well. <laughs> yeah, you definitely chose the the championship. Team. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah, good on you. Chose wisely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. We, I mean, that was all new information to us because mm-hmm. we do not. I mean, this is not our expertise <laughs> at all. Thank or you even. so much. It's a very unusual situation, and yeah. I appreciate the invitation to up here. After we had that interview with um, Professor Butler, something Jordan and I were talking about is we sincerely hope that the Russian team that she is a member of is helping and intervening. Um, Like he suggested, you know, she is of great importance to them. She has been super valuable to them throughout her time playing there. If she gets out. Um, when she gets out, she will likely be going back to the U.S. So I'm not sure if that situation will totally end, but I would be willing to bet all the money that she certainly will not be continuing on with them this season, um, even in their Premier League. Yeah. And after the break, we are going to hear from Dr. Courtney Cox, who can kind of put it into a big picture frame of women's basketball players and their time over there and what their labor has to do with it. Um, And it's a fascinating conversation. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you've got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. 
Start hiring right now with the $75 sponsor job credit to upgrade your job posts at indeed.com slash spinsters. Offer valid through March 31st. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to indeed.com slash spinsters to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy. And Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. Indeed.com slash spinsters. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Courtney, do you think we could start with you introducing yourself and uh, your position at Oregon and then what you're working on? Or I guess, you know, always the thing that ties you to this specifically. Yeah. So um, my name is Dr. Courtney M. Cox. Y'all can obviously call me Courtney. I am an assistant professor at the University of Oregon in the Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies Department. Um, My work broadly looks at issues of labor, identity, and technology within sport and sports media. Um, Part of what I do is I do this for things like digital humanities projects. I'm currently working on a fantastic uh, book-length project with a music scholar on the history, cultural history of the Super Bowl halftime show uh, as part of our larger project called The Sound of Victory. Um, and so I also, um, in my own work, especially focus a lot on thinking about gender and sport. Um, my dissertation and my forthcoming book um, focus on uh, the role of women's basketball around the world and thinking about how their labor travels across borders, um, largely in this, uh, you know, in a very academic sense of thinking about this late-stage capitalism where people product ideas are constantly circulating. What does that mean for especially what I focus on as Black women and non-binary athletes? What happens to them as they circulate across those spaces? So the book is called Double Crossover, um, thinking about all the different ways that labor crosses over, whether they're becoming members of the media, whether they are transporting their labor overseas, um, or whether they're thinking about what it means to the crossover into fashion. If we think about the tunnel as a certain kind of runway, uh, we think about the role of Instagram and Twitter um, in this current landscape, we find women's sport of how we have to, in many ways, like programs like this fantastic one, do it ourselves. Um, and what these, these new technology affordances allow us to do to break through um, the things that aren't covered by mainstream sports media. Oh my God, if we could hire you full time for Spencer's, I'm like, <laughs> where can we I get just that take budget? your class? <laughs> wow. I'm like, <laughs> where can I pre order everything? <laughs> yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> wow. um, Jordan, do you want to jump in? I mean, we have a lot to ask you about. Yes. Um, I think I just want to start with one of the questions you had, Haley, just to go broadly. Um, one of the things that you tweeted and in the New York Times uh, article that you were featured in, you talked a little bit about your experience while you were in Russia uh, researching your upcoming book. What was that experience like? And um, tell us as much as you can. <laughs> Russia was a really um, wild experience for me as a researcher, as someone that um, I'm, I'm from Texas originally. And, uh, and and so for me, if you think about whatever the stereotypes you might feel about Texas, whatever the things you might love, if it's tacos and barbecue for you, like I'm all for that. If it's about oppressive legislative decisions, it's also true. Um, and so thinking about that, um, I think my positionality is really important, right? I'm coming into this space at the time 
Um, I was much closer to the age of my participants. Um, and so thinking about coming to this space as a Black woman, um, coming into this space and that studies Black women in sport, um, and then thinking about what happens if you're from the U.S. and you go and you're playing overseas. And so I had this fantastic participant I met when I worked for the Sparks, who at the time was heading to play to Italy. Um, and playing in Italy, that sounded like a great kind of like summer, like fall research endeavor. Um, and then she told me she actually was playing the next season in Russia. And I was like, oh, that's that's different than the pizza plans that I had um, in Naples. Right. And so I think I think part of it alerted me to the fact that you situate yourself in one place the next season, it could be something completely different. So you're playing in the W in the summer and then you're switching up and you're going somewhere sometimes different. Sometimes you play consistently um, for the same team or, or league um, every year. And so for me, I was kind of thrown into that space of thinking about, for me, I knew if I wanted to write about women's hoops, I couldn't just keep it in the States um, because they don't stay there. They're constantly moving. They're playing year round. They're going and playing in conditions with sometimes you're taping your own ankles. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. So not only the wear and tear on your body, but the resources. What happens if you get injured in another country? What happens when you don't speak the language? And so I was really interested in tangling that. And so part of it was I started with just interviewing folks. At the time, Zoom was not a thing um, the way that we think about it now. So it was Skype and it was Google Hangouts and it was, you know, sometimes middle of the night talking to folks in China uh, from their hotel rooms. And so when I decided to go um, and follow players overseas, um, I ended up going overseas with Sierra Burdick. Um, and um, thinking about what it might mean for her labor in that moment. And so first thing that happens, layover, I'm going to Kazan, Russia. Uh, First thing that happens, layovers in Moscow, almost get snatched up in the airport. Uh, Very taken situation. They saw I had a U.S. passport. I had my boarding pass in my hand. And one of the things that happened is two things that feel really different to me now, having spent time in Russia. Someone came up to me, spoke speaking to me in English, and someone was being really friendly. Two things that are not what you typically experience in Russia. And I was so green, so new to this. And they were like, let's help you you've missed your flight. And I was like, I think I have a two and a half hour layover. They're like, no, no, no. We have to go get your a new ticket. You have to come with us. And they start escorting and they briefly kind of flash this, like, here's my pass. And I'm like, well, they seem like they work for the airport. And then, and I'm like, maybe I did some weird time thing. Maybe I have a bad boarding pass. I'm like thinking about like, how could this happen? I thought I had like three hours. So they're escorting me out and I'm watching everyone that got off the plane with me going up the elevator towards the gates and they're taking me out. And then I see the desks where all the airlines and then they're like, hey, do you have cash? They asked me if I have rubles. Right. And I had I had money already. I already had Russian money. Um, And I was like, that's a weird question because I paid on my car. I'm like still not getting what's happened. They're asking me if I have cash. They're asking me they're pulling and then someone else joins in with them. So now there's two people and they're and they have my passport. When they ask to look at my boarding pass, I handed it to them. It was inside of my passport. So they're holding my passport and the boarding pass. And I have no choice but to follow them. And I'm looking. And so then we get to, I'm like, okay, we're at the desk. This is going to be legit. We are going past the desk now. And I was like, I'm actually going to need my boarding pass back. So they give me the boarding pass back. And they're like, this way, this way. They're like rushing me. And then the sliding doors open and it's like Russian winter hits me in the face. And I realized we are leaving the airport. And I was like, nope, nope, nope. I literally, I did not turn around. I didn't look back. I didn't say anything. I was just like, nope. I have seen all the Liam Neeson films that I need in this moment to know that this is not what's happening on this day. Um, and I didn't tell, like at the time, I didn't tell my partner or my mom or my dad until I landed back in the United States. But it was this moment of like, 
you have to be on it. And this is in the airport, again, the same airport we're talking about, right? So that's in mm-hmm. Moscow. Um, I get to Kazan. At the time, I did my graduate study um, at USC. So I'm coming from Los Angeles, did not have a ton of winter stuff. So people were letting me borrow everything I needed to survive Russian winter. Um, so I had this bag packed perfectly. Um, and then I get to Kazan after traveling almost 24 hours to get to this small town. It was a decent city. Um, getting there and the we're watching the rotation of all the luggage. I'm standing there. And at this point, I think it's close to 1 a.m. in Kazan. And, and Sierra's coming to the airport to pick me up. I've been traveling. I survived this taken situation. And then my luggage is not there. I only have the clothes I'm literally wearing on my back from Los Angeles to Moscow to Kazan. And no one wants to help me find the luggage. There is no English equivalent, which is also, there's a lot of silly American stories I can tell about myself, but I'm like trying to use Google Translate to figure out how to fill out the form. I'm like, where do I get this bag delivered? How do addresses work? And then Sierra's there also trying to help me. So then we're both trying to figure out. And then there's just this disgruntled, like, these people really come here and don't know how to speak Russian, which is so true. Mm. It's just, that's on us. Um, but, you know, eventually, so she calls her, like, middle of the night, she calls, like, one of the managers for the team. And they translate to fill out the form and get everything done. And then they're like, maybe you get the bag, maybe you don't. And I was like, do we all have a little faith? And, like, four days later, so I have to go to the Russian mall um, and buy random clothes at the H&M. H&M always saves me. Um, and so I, I'm at Russian H&M. And I am just grabbing things that I feel like can keep my body warm. Cause I don't know if I'm ever going to get, I'm going to be there for weeks. Like, I don't know if I'm going to ever get my luggage back or I'm just going to be hand washing clothes in the sink. So anyway, like four, four or five days later, my suitcase just shows up at the gym. Like no one says anything. There's no explanation. My entire luggage, everything is in there. I don't know where my luggage was for five days. It was somewhere. It was in some country. They couldn't tell me where it was. It just shows up to the gym. Um, so that's like the transit, like thinking about this idea of just movement, all these little things that get mm. caught up, let alone being a pro athlete that's constantly practicing, constantly traveling, constantly playing. Um, and so from my very narrow, very privileged perspective, I kind of saw all the things that these athletes are grappling with um, as they're moving across borders and playing with teams. And they have very different kinds of not only compensation structures, um, very different contracts and contractual obligations on when you can leave and what happens when you leave. Um, and then thinking finally about um, just like undervalued labor, even when you're overseas and there's a men's team that plays there that also has foreign players playing there. They practice less and they have more games. Um, and so that was one of the things I, that I saw consistently across like foreign players and Russian players are like, there's still these huge gender gaps that are happening, both in terms of pay, um, opportunity, um, roster spots, all of these things. And so, um, you know, the patriarchy is global. We know that. Um, but one of the things that I've been really interested in and, and really invested in is telling these stories about the struggle to just have a love for a ball and wanting to play professionally, wanting that to be your life in all the different ways you have to sew this life together. Um, that is both about the ingenuity um, of these athletes, but also about the ways that it's so frustratingly structural. Um, the Everything you just touched on and like the experience of, okay, losing your luggage, not speaking the language, trying to figure out where this is. How do you do this? You had um, a player who acted at could act as a, a partial guide something that you have talked about before is the you called it a trauma bond that develops um, between players who go abroad and 
something we talked about before we started recording was um, maybe the general public not still having a complete understanding of why that's necessary. Um, So I think this is kind of a two-parter. We have tried to cover this um, before. There's an episode we can link in the show notes um, that Natalie Weiner did for us called Overseas, Overworked, and Over It. Mm. that talks about why teams abroad can offer more money or just do offer more money. I think can maybe implies the wrong thing um, (laughs) because anything's possible WNBA. Um, But can you talk a little bit about the trauma bond um, that players experience over there? And then if you'd like to touch on it, because I know that we were talking about it, why they're over there in the first place, which is not a neat, easy, clean answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a way that folks think it's like a tourist trip, you know, like this, like this is just like a fun off season jaunt. And then I think there's uh, a way that the necessity and, and the the new CBA has openings in terms of paying more, but there's a lot of work we still have left to do. And so that for me is not a, a critique of the Players Association. That's more so a critique of the league and the structures that inform it. Um, obviously, travel has been a huge kind of conversation as of late regarding the W um, in, in comparison to even the NCAA. And so um, one of the things that I always like to talk about when we think about these structures is um First of all, the idea of the season. So, you know, I um, am someone that is not a historian, but there's a lot of love and respect I have for the ABL and thinking about what it meant to create a women's league that played during what we call basketball season, right? Um, And there's a lot of strength in that. There's a lot of ways that the ABL was really ahead of its time in terms of players having ownership and investment in the league. And we see even when we think about Athletes Unlimited, what does it mean when players are more actively involved? What does that league look like? How is it marketed? How is it mediated? Right. And mm-hmm. so um, in many ways, when I see AU and there's there's much smarter people than me to talk about that, I think about what the ABL could have been if it had survived um, the strength and might of the NBA's WNBA. And so a lot of what I think about is the necessity to compete overseas to still make less than um at sometimes NBA refs, right? Um, and so when we think about um, the the sheer discrepancy, and again, um, I'm not really here to compare. I don't in my work, I don't sit around comparing what the men are doing because uh, my framework is centered around um, what women and non-binary athletes are doing and how they're thinking about these spaces. And a lot of times, they're not sitting around comparing themselves to the men. They're comparing themselves to what they deserve as athletes. Sometimes they're comparing themselves to their college experience, right? Like I'm a better athlete now and yet I travel worse, right? And when you're playing overseas, that travel could be a train, that travel can be a bus. It can be multiple flights, multiple layovers. You're arriving exhausted to another town where you don't speak the language, you don't know and have your bearings around you. And so when I think about that labor, there's a way that it's either discounted as like, Well, it's just a side hustle, right? Rather than that is where they make the majority of their money. And then the other thing that's lost is the things that you don't get to do, right? So when I'm around these athletes, they're training on FaceTime with their actual trainer because the training regimen is very different in different countries and different leagues. And so you're still doing your W workouts, but you're also practicing twice a day, but also you're traveling to play around Russia, a massive country. Um, And so for me, when I think about like hustle and grind of what that looks like, It is very different um, when we think about this year-round play. It is very different when we think about the health and safety challenges. And that safety thing 
is even thinking about um, not just things like, I don't know, geopolitical <laughs> warfare, but also thinking about things um, in the everyday in terms of being a highly visible person. We're talking typically, you know, I'm I'm not going to be read as an athlete, honestly, in these spaces, but I'm, I'm walking around with someone that's over six feet and they're highly visible and they're trying to figure out why are these black women here in this country? And so you, in many ways, become a target either by the police. It's very possible there are a lot of stories actually about W players um, getting harassed by the police, getting stopped by police. It's no different than being literally here in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, but also there's a way, again, the added layers of not being from here when they look at your passport, when you're highly visible, um, the idea of people calling in and being like, that person doesn't belong here, right? And so again, this feeling of precarity, if you think about already this very precarious labor for a lot of women athletes around the world, it's exacerbated when you're completely thrown into a new environment. And so how you live your life, how you are straddling these two different places, how do you build community? How do you build a family? How do you have a partner that gets your life across these two worlds um, are the things that I think about, like the everyday, um, even the seemingly mundane things that aren't about getting detained in the, in the airport are still, there's a lot of strife that's built in. And so that bond is like those that get it, get it. And so when I think about that, when you're playing another team, one of the things that I saw was like W players find each other, even if they're going to compete against each other next day. When the other team comes into the gym, they'll come in there to speak. And that's one of the things that happened when I was there. It was like you're playing UMMC, but like, you know, the people playing there or you might play on the same W team with them in the summer. Right. And so you're playing against them. There's a way that strategy and the way one of the things I love about the WNBA, which I could talk about all day, is like the idea of going from teammates to opponents can happen within a single year, right? And so the way that you learn other people's game, the way that these athletes talk about each other's game, whether it's out of respect or knowledge, is unparalleled because of how they have to maneuver across these various teams and leagues. And you talk about the the trauma bonds, but also the risks that overseas play has always kind of had. It's it's always been in the back of the mind of like, okay, you're going to play in a foreign country, but this is what you have to do if you want to continue to play basketball. And when you see Brittany Griner's situation, this seems like the worst possible thing that could happen. Do you think it's going to affect women's basketball players as a whole of thinking twice of going to play overseas? Mm -hmm. Or is this still something that you feel like in a labor sense, they have to do to continue to make a living? Yeah, I mean, part of it, and I, can't, I, I cannot speak for them. I can only kind of think about, I'm going to go back to um, like that, that time I was there, which was the beginning of 2018, um, which is an interesting time to be an American in that time post 2016 election, as we're finding out all the disinformation campaigns and Russia's interference and role. Um, it was an interesting time, right? And so, but during that time, one of the, the things that was happening is thinking about what was going on in Turkey and how um, a lot of folks were either being evacuated out, choosing not to play, or were not able to travel. So Turkey had been kind of on my radar, Russia, Turkey, China, three of the top um, leagues in terms of pay and competition outside of the W. Um, so thinking about that, a lot of folks were playing in China and Russia. That made sense to go to those spaces. And then Turkey was a really interesting one. And so I was interested in kind of the investment in, in women's hoops in Turkey versus Russia and China had been way more established, um, in my mind, at least from a global Olympic perspective. And so 
um, Turkey was a really unsafe place for a lot of folks. And so, um, you know, and Israel has its own thing. There was a lot of folks I talked to that were playing in Israel. Um, even though I was in Russia, I was on Skype with folks playing in Israel. And so there are a lot of things um, that were already baked in before this current moment. And so I, I, I think about Turkey and Israel as two spaces where, again, folks are exchanging information and networks um, about what it's like to play, where you play, if you live near a checkpoint, all of these things, um, what, what's going on. So I can't say that folks will, I think, I think this moment is a heightened visibility where you think twice because while there have been moments where folks had to be rushed home, that's something that happens in a lot of different spaces across time. Um, but this is one that is is so different that it might make folks reconsider. Or not only even folks, but it's like my mom calling me like wanting to talk about it because it took her back to that place when her kid was there, right? And so it's not just players, but it's, it's, you know, it's players, mamas too, you know, want to weigh in on that. Um, and so... For me, I think it will. And I think that one of the things we see with not only the increased investment in women in terms of brands and endorsement opportunities that can allow you to stay in the States, um, we is the new CBA, which has allowed some folks to find new spaces. And one of those things, another kind of W shooting itself in the foot is when we think about what happened um, when W players became assistant coaches in the NBA and their salaries were capped um, and or they were told, like, you can do that as an internship, but not as a job. Right. Mm. Um, and so it's to me, it's wild to tell some of the best athletes in the world that they can't use their expertise during the season to make millions of dollars. Their counterparts. Let's talk about gender gender gaps um, right after um, International Women's Day. But thinking about like doing the work of being an assistant coach in the NBA and then having to take this little stipend because your other job that won't pay you enough says, oh, well, that's the, that's the limit, right? And so um, I think there are ways that the new CBA addresses some of those ridiculous policies, um, but there are folks that are still going to have to make that decision. Um, and that's the thing that, that gets me is that you are, you feel that fear or there is that trauma or there is that awful thing that happened to you when you played overseas. And yet this is the avenue, right? There's only a certain number of players because of how the W markets itself um, that can even have access to those, those opportunities um, to stay here. I, my mind went so many places when you were talking because um, there are just so many avenues that we could explore of like, how, how does something like this become safer? Um, you know, cause many leagues, Jordan and I were just talking about the particular Russian team that Brittany Griner, um, plays for, you know, they participate in the country league, the premier league, and then they largely outside of that, um, participate in the FIBA, um, Euro league. And, this is very typical in soccer. Soccer has worked it out, but the W obviously has no um, relation to these other leagues. And so it's just not able to, it being so separate and the resistance that we kind of feel from the W, I think is is part of the reason um, why there's so much separation maybe in how the players navigate their lives when they, when they play abroad. And then the other thing I was thinking about is like that... <laughs> Capping accommodations, pay, I think of the Liberty um, flight <laughs> scenario, um, capping, anytime you cap accommodations for a professional league, 
I mean, we're not even, they don't even have the basis to go and say the, the thing that the NCAA used to say, which was like, you have to be amateurs or it's not fair. What's the excuse here? There is no, absolutely no excuse um, to cap accommodations for people who are just trying to make it um, and do this thing that they are talented at and the best in the world at. Um, I want to go back to what you were talking about um, when you were saying that players have kind of this network where I'm going to tell you how this team is and here you're near a checkpoint um, and, you know, this is great, this isn't great. Something that I've been thinking about the entire time, I'm sure we all have, is that Brittany Griner is, like you said, extremely tall. She's a black woman. She's a gay woman. Um, on Russian state TV, uh, there's a segment I saw from CNN that was translated to essentially they were like mockingly referencing um that she was gay and so you were over there i'm not sure like what your experience was seeing anything or having these conversations but do you think that that coverage kind of portrays the attitude over there um or the reception to something like that yeah it's so yeah it's important that we think about like how how this carceral situation is like across race, gender, and sexuality, nationality in an important way. So I really appreciate that. Um, I think for me, one of the things that uh, was really obvious, I think I think I was holding a lot um, post Sochi. Um, and, and again, I was there thinking about like all the, the news around like Russia being like, you are not allowed to be any kind of gay here. Do not have any messaging. Do not have any allies, like all these things that we heard. So for me going over there, that was kind of in the back of my mind of like, how will this be read? How will I be read in this space? And then thinking about like, you know, who's who can pass, right? Um, I think is another kind of privilege. And then this idea of like, like the mockery is to me no different than if, you know, for me just thinking about um, our own kind of media coverage here in the States and thinking about all the anti-trans language that's going around. It, it's a similar kind of top-down thing, but from the perspective of where I was, there was not the same kind of sense, both in terms of um, the Russian athletes that were there, their own relationship to their own sexuality, um, mm -hmm. thinking about who was partnered, who, who, who folks knew were partnered, um, folks partners coming to the games, and so in many ways, when we think about um, legislation versus lived experience, I think it has a lot of parallels with a lot of countries in terms of, yes, there are all these oppressive structures and language and media coverage that are not unlike the states here or other places, but in terms of how people feel on the ground, I was not subject to a lot of homophobic language or there were plenty of folks that were out um, in the spaces that, that I found myself in. Um, but I, I think that basketball is, and women's hoops in itself is um, a very complicated space when we think about the evolution um, of who can be out versus um, a fear of like reifying stereotypes. I will say that is very much a thing in terms of youth sports in Russia. And, and one of the coaches, one of the managers that I talked to was coaching the youth sport level and trying to get girls more involved in hoops in Russia. And one of the things they were like, well, my, my mom says I'll be too mannish or that's what boys do. And so it is not unlike the ways that there are these social 
um, constructions that we hear at youth sports um, or, or the ways that girls are pushed out or discouraged from sports. And there was this idea of you can't you can't be girly. Right. Um, and, and also compete or these ways that these there are these structured things of who sport is for. We'll give all the resources to boys. Right. And so. What I learned from the manager who's Russian and, and her own, um, her father was a, a legendary coach. And so she really wanted to get girls and women into sport. Um, there are all these gender things, right? Even on the team of not being too muscular, right? That was one thing that was, they really didn't lift. Their their idea of lifting was kind of like the NCAA's vision of that one gym with the, <laughs> with the yoga mats and the two five pound weights. Oh, no. So that, but it was an idea of not being too muscular, being able to appeal on Instagram um, in the marketing campaigns to Russia at large, to the fan base of being beautiful blonde Russian women that are model like tall and model esque, but not too muscular. Um, and that's from a, a league perspective rather than and and being told that like I can't be the star on the team if I don't appeal to a certain kind of femininity, which is again not unlike how we see women's sports pushed here in the states. So I, I, right. I there are definite parallels mm-hmm. that I think about in terms of who can be marketed, who can be marketable, um, and this idea of strength being this this detractor in sport, where in any other situation, strength, um, muscles are these things that are markers of greatness. And so um, there are those same things that, again, globally, there's in my work, there's all these ways I see parallels in terms of how, how women are treated in these spaces and the limitations, right, to how we have to be great, but also look, we, there's all these different parameters and things that we have to check off um, that our male counterparts do not. And so um, I saw a lot of that, but in terms of like straight up homophobia, I think it was more like um, very similar to other other countries that I've visited. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean, yeah. w- with most of the things you're saying, like all the the wanting the women to appeal and look physically how somebody might want them to look, like that's every reply guy ever trying to fix, quote unquote, fix the WNBA. So the yeah. more, um, you know, we look at other places and their issues, I think the more we see them in our own um, society here. So, uh, that is so unfortunate. I, and, I just, and yeah. Like what you said about connecting to what it is here. That's what Brittany Griner's experience was at Baylor. Her yes. coach so then Kim Mulkey so was like, actually keep your sexuality to yourself. Like, let's mm-hmm. not blast that on, even though you're playing for the championship, you're the star player and don't be your true self. And so that yeah. that very much mirrors our very own Texas in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't Kim uh, asked her, she told her to, well, I think recommended might be the word, but uh, recommended Brittany Griner delete her her social media that references her girlfriend or? Yeah, she t- I, in the book, she talks about how it was like, call, she was called in uh, to Mulkey's mm-hmm. office um, to, to explain the Instagram post or whatever, even as her teammates who are dating men, their posts were just fine, right? So she was like, maybe keep your personal life to yourself, right? I think is, is what happened in the meeting. Um, but there were all these other ways. And one of the things that's so frustrating about, um, you know, Baylor and, and a lot of private schools in terms of these codes of conduct um, and how homophobia is inscribed in them is the fact that when she was being recruited, Brittany went to Mulkey and was like, hey, I see this is in the code of conduct at Baylor. Is this going to affect me? You know that I'm gay. Right. Um, and so there it wasn't just a bad faith 
kind of understanding of like, oh, they'll bend the rules for me. It was more like I actually came and asked. Mocha's like, no, no problem at all. We know we got you, blah, blah, blah. Right. Mm. Um, and then in practice, it was like, hey, can you keep the gay down a little bit? Right. And so that's that's one thing that is striking to me about how they're how sometimes when we're situating the U.S. or a certain moment in relationship to other countries, I'm like, like you said, it's like, ah, 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 remember that one time? Mm-hmm. Um, remember that t- the 10 times, right? And so when we think about um, this idea of, of mockery in such a, a fraught moment, a terrifying moment, that even in that moment, there's this replication or even thinking about going back to Baylor. It wasn't just Mulkey, right? It was also how other coaches, we can talk about some legendary ones that were really, really, really problematic, Um, And so I will never forget that. I know a lot of other folks won't. And so in this moment, when there's been this career that has given women's hoop, I mean, 2013 was a moment in women's hoops, that draft class. I I just, I think about everything from high school, um, high school forward that that Brittany has given the game. and, And I'm in many ways, just so devastated that, that we have nothing to give her back. Um, and I'm, I'm saying we as a collective, as a nation, as mm-hmm. uh, the various governmental departments, right? Um, I see the way that people are even in this moment when she is currently detained. I see how people are still talking about her. And that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that we get her home safe. But I think it is just insult to injury. And um, in a lot of my work, I just am trying to recover those those voices and give voice to that because I think... Um, you know, in many ways, y'all are on the socials. Uh, it's it's very hard, you know, like the way that people talk about folks on the interwebs is like surreal, right? Um, mm-hmm. Folks that would never, I mean, the, the keyboard thugs are wild because when I'm actually in those spaces or I'm actually out in public in spaces or around W player, like it's, it's so different, right? And so, you know, there's all the things that people say on the internet and then there's real life. And then there's real life if you actually all this like, oh, I, I think I could score on so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, nah, they're actually going to block the shit out of that as soon as you <laughs> look like, yeah, at it. It's like these goals gym warriors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of my part of my work completely disregards. And we know they're there. Um, I don't center them in my work. Um, I don't compare what's happening in the NBA um, because they're two different leagues that emerge in different moments and need different things. And so I'm I'm really I I hate the comparison of like well if it were Tom Brady or if it were it's like well we're that would be to erase the entire historical moment that got us to here and to mm-hmm. Russia, um, and so I don't think that's the right framework. I'm not here to tell people how to how to feel, um, but I just think that we have to think about all the conditions of labor that got Brittany to Russia in the first place for multiple seasons and think about what our role is as folks that are working in the W, folks that love women's hoops. Um, Y'all are doing the work, Um, but I'm thinking about all the different ways that um, USA Basketball, the W, these large enterprises have um, a role to play that have benefited from Griner's hustle, from Griner's incredible, incredible talent. And if they're not trying to help get BG home, I actually don't want to hear anything from them about anything else. Like, I just feel like y'all should just go radio silence. I can't believe that the WNBA was arguing with us about flights last week if they supposedly knew that BG was over there. And so my thing is like, either we can talk about it or we can actually be about it at this point, because I think this could be such a critical moment for us to reshape the landscape of this really, really important league. 
Courtney, thank you so much. I, that was a good summation of like tying together the 15 Everything. things that we need to talk about when we think about what's going on with Brittany Griner. And I really appreciate it. Thanks thank for having you. me, y'all. Amazing. Thank you so much. Well, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was really important to Haley and I. Um, and leave us a voicemail. Tell us your favorite Brittany Griner moments. Tell us your favorite W moments. All the lovey-dovey stuff. We need it right now. Call us at 502-874-4453 or send us an email at spinsters at bluewirepods.com to be featured on the show. And again, shout out to our producer, Harry Krinsky. Hey, Jordan, Haley. Uh, my name is Josh New. I'm calling from D.C. I'm a diehard Wizards fan. I realize that's a very depressing sentence. But um, something that would make me happy tomorrow is if the Wiz somehow lucked into Moses Moody falling to them. I think he's a perfect game three player. Or, you know, just drafting someone that doesn't suck because we need players that don't suck. All right, bye.